If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the book of Jude. If you'll remember, not last week, but the week before, we had taken a pause uh, from the book of Jude because I wanted to give further investigation and, and uh, dig a little deeper in verses number 14 and 15. If you'll remember from last week, 14 and 15, or the last time we were in the book of Jude, 14 and 15 was in the midst of what we were talking about when we talked about the description uh, in the book of Jude. He's describing these false teachers and everything. And, and then in verse 14 and 15, he, he breaks into the subject of the coming and return of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to, I, I told you that week, I'm going to reserve that to come back and, 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 and focus on that this morning. So that's where we're here. So we'll pick up reading in Jude. Uh, oh, there are only one chapter, but Jude, verse number 14 and verse 15. Look, in that, and look at that with, in your copy of God's Word. Jude 14 and 15. He says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh, with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all of their ungodly, uh, uh, all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's the end of our text. If you would. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I want us to look this morning at the revelation in the book of Jude. The revelation. We looked at the illustration, the, the design, or description. But now we're going to look at the revelation in Jude. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through it. God, as we go through these verses, I pray that you would remind us of the truth that is contained in them. That you are coming again. That one day Jesus Christ will visibly, physically, bodily split the eastern sky and appear before the, all the eyes of this world. Jesus is coming again. May we leave this building with a newfound assurance of the coming of Jesus Christ. God, if there be any with us that don't know the Lord Jesus, may their hearts be directed to Him in anticipation of that coming, and may they, may they trust in Jesus and have that confidence in that day. Have that trust, that firm trust that Jesus, that they'll be taken into the presence of Jesus and there be found no condemnation because they've trusted in Him. God, help our hearts this morning. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. I want you for a moment to take your mind and your imagination uh, to a scene I'd like to paint for you in your, in your, in your mind. Imagine you're in a large city. It's late at night. The streets are dark. They are illuminated. The sidewalks walks are illuminated by, by glowing yellow street lights. There are towering skyscrapers all about you as you walk through this downtown scene. As you walk along the sidewalk, there are people hustling and bustling by you, going back and forth, going all to their, uh, to their uh, evening plans, and they barely even notice you as you walk down the sidewalk. 
after a few blocks, you come to a very unusual building. And that building is of an aged resemblance, but it, is, it, it towers high above all the other buildings that are around them. You might think of something like uh, Big Ben in England, the Tower of London that has that large clock, something like that. And so on the face of this building at its height, there is a large face of a clock. In interest, you go into that building and you are there greeted by a scene of a, of, of a mechanical nature inside that building. As you walk in, you see gear after gear slowly turning uh, inside the building. In the building also is the clockmaker or the clock keeper. And he addresses you, you make chit chat and small talk. And then he, you begin to talk to him about the clock itself. All of its immense gears and, and hanging counterweights are all visible inside that building. The, the, uh, the keeper of the clock tells you a little bit about, about the clock, but he wants to show you something even more interesting. And so he begins to take you by the hand and lead you up a narrow stairway a sp uh, that goes up and up and up, towering floor after floor until you come to an awning or a landing uh, on the side of that clock, just underneath the immense face of that clock. As you look from the balcony, you are high above the streets. As a matter of fact, all of the sounds of honking cars and the talk of people is drowned out to a faint echo. You can barely hear what's going on below you. Then the clockmaker points you to the even more minute gears of the clock, keeping its perfect timing. You hear the rhythmic sound of every second clock ticking by. Tick, tick, tick. As you look closely at these individual gears, there is an unusual inscription in every one of them. In every one of those gears, as you look at, there is a Bible reference engraved on it. As it turns slightly, you make out, you make out passages such as, as can be found in Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, in 1 Peter, in 1 Corinthians, in Revel the book of Revelation itself. And finally, the clockmaker, after he sees you noticing these gears, he points you to an inscription on the ever-clicking, uh, ever-ticking clock. The inscription on the base of the clock in small letters are these words, The time is near. The wise old clockmaker begins to explain, This clock, my friend, represents not only the passing of time, but the reminder that our Savior, Jesus Christ, will soon return just as He promised. Just as this clock keeps ticking away, moving us closer and closer to the appointed hour, so too are we approaching the glorious moment when Jesus will come back in all of His splendor. I tell you that story to remind you of how easy it is to be overcome and, and in the entanglements of life and miss the reality of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Far Eastern cultures 
When they, when they have the perception of time, time to them is a circle. A circle that is ever repeating again and again. A circle that goes repeating. And life is just a never-ending rebirth and reciprocation. But the clear teaching of the Word of God is that time is a straight line. A straight line terminating at the return of Jesus Christ. Listen to me closely. Jesus is coming again. Now although this theme of the return of Jesus is mentioned again and again elsewhere in the New Testament, as we've been making our way through the book of Jude, we've come face to face in this little epistle with this very theme. Jesus is coming again. In the midst of Jude's illustration of the character and tactics of these false teachers that are infiltrating the people of God, he reiterates the promised return of Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at this return of Jesus in these two verses, and I want us to hear that clock ticking. I want us to hear that Jesus' return is ever approaching sooner than sooner. And I want to remind us that the time is near. There are three points of emphasis I'd like to make. Number one, I want you to see the scriptural promise of Christ's return. Jude 14 and 15. Remember as we read it, it's almost as Jude is taking an aside. He's going through a description before. He goes to a description after. But these two verses are almost as an aside by the inspired author. It is as though he is exasperated by the character of these infiltrators and the audacity of those devilishly empowered false teachers. And so in these verses, he reminds us that there will be a day of coming judgment for them. That their, that their ungodly deeds will not go unpunished. And in doing so, he opens up the subject of the return of Christ. Now, this subject is not unique to the little epistle of Jude, but it's woven throughout the fabric of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I did research this morning as to how many places in the New Testament, or how many books of the New Testament directly reference the return of Jesus Christ. All four gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Jesus' promise of His return following His death, burial, and resurrection. Paul mentions it in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Peter speaks about Christ's return in both of his epistles. John writes of it in his first epistle and details it thoroughly and explicitly in the book of Revelation. So it's not new. This is not unique in the New Testament to mention the return of Jesus Christ. As we look at the scriptural promise and think about that, I want to talk to you about a prophecy declared. A prophecy declared. When, when Jude talks about the promise of Christ's coming, he does so not in the terms of the New Testament reference, but in an Old Testament reference. An Old Testament mention of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, in a moment, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail because when you read this passage, Enoch, who is Enoch? As a matter of fact, I think Hebrews is the only other book in the New Testament outside of genealogy that mentions the person of Enoch. 
Who is Enoch? And we're going to go into that a little further in the message here. But I want to highlight the nature of this promise as coming from the Old Testament. Now you have Paul telling us that Jesus is coming. You have Peter affirming Jesus is coming. You have Jesus himself telling us that he is coming again. But Jude reaches beyond the New Testament revelation into the Old Testament. Now when I come to uh, the Old Testament promise of the coming of Christ, we have to distinguish it between his first coming and his second coming. You see, that's not completely clear oftentimes in Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. You know, for example, listen to this passage, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You're going to recognize it immediately, but listen to what it says. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and the peace uh, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's Isaiah 9:6. For unto you is born, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know that we talk about it just about every Christmas. That's Isaiah's prophecy that God, the Son of God, God will be made man. He will be born into this world. Isaiah 7, as we'll see further, talks about the virgin birth. But it references the, the birth of Christ, but then all of a sudden it goes and skips to the government being on his shoulder, to the Messiah sitting on the throne of David, to his kingdom having no end. Well... Yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but we have yet to see a government that rests upon his shoulders. We have not seen Jesus occupy the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. We have, here we have a promise of Christ's first coming and second coming combined, separated only by a comma. But take a look at these other promises Direct references to the second coming of Christ in the Old Testament. Zechariah 14.4 And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall clave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west and there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountains shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. Is that taking place? No. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And I saw the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man come with clouds of heaven and, and came up to the ancient uh, and came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him, and he was given uh, him dominion and glory and kingdom, and all the people and nations and languages should serve him. Is that to happen? No. And Micah 3, 2 through 3. But who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner of fire, like a fuller soap, and he shall sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Have we seen anything that would come near that? No. These are all prophecies, not of the first coming, but of the second coming of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. 
And these are just three additional promises concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus originating in the Old Testament. And there are many others which we can mention. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, Isaiah 26, 21, Isaiah 66, 15 through 16, Daniel 12, 1 and 2, Joel 3, 16, Zechariah 12, 10, Zechariah 9, 14, Zechariah 14, 9. Jude's mentioning of Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ is not obscure. It's not strange, but it's pervasive. The Old Testament again and again declares there is coming a day of judgment, a day of rule and reign of the Messiah. Prophecy declared, also prophecy delivered. You know, when it comes to the Word of God and the divinely revealed declarations of God time and time again, where prophecy is declared, prophecy is delivered. I mean, listen, a prophecy is a promise. Amen? A prophecy is a promise. We see the fulfillment of prophecy time and time again. You know, there are numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ at His first coming. That's one of the most wonderful proofs of who Jesus is. That He fulfilled so many promises that He could not manage. Nobody can manage the place of their birth before they're ever born. Jesus didn't wrangle and stranglehold His life to fulfill prophecies. They just took place. But these prophecies are again and again. Here's just a few examples that were fulfilled by Jesus. We already mentioned Isaiah chapter number 9 in the coming of Jesus being born as the Messiah, born, uh, born of human flesh. But the Messiah's birthplace is proclaimed in Micah 5 too. He's to be born in Bethlehem. The virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew, Matthew identifies that promise in correspondence with Jesus. Being of the lineage of David, Jeremiah 23, 5-6, and Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Matthew, Cor Matthew and also Luke correspond to that lineage in their Gospel New Testament account. The, Matthew, Matthew, the Messiah's suffering and rejection of Isaiah 53 corresponded by the theme of all the New Testament, Jesus dying for our sins. Betrayal by a friend, Psalm 41.9. We see that fulfilled in the Gospel of John. Uh, crucifixion and piercing, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, 5 and 7, fulfilled in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of these promises of Jesus were fulfilled. And in the same breath, God would give a promise of the first coming and the second coming, just like Isaiah 9. He would give one for the first coming, one for the second coming. Now, my, my, I tell you all this to say this. If God delivered on every promise concerning the first coming of Jesus, then there is not one single reason why the sovereign God of heaven would not fulfill every promise concerning His second coming. I don't care if it's a thousand years from this point or it happens next week. His word is sure, His promise is true, and Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. He's coming Again, the scriptural promise. Although Jude references the Old Testament, he gives us every reason to know God's promise is true, that Jesus is coming again. 
the scriptural promise of Christ's return, the stunning judgment of Christ's return. Now, even though I've brushed against the subject matter in Jude 14 and 15, the real theme of what he's saying is about the judgment of Jesus when he comes. Now, to be honest, Jude using reference when he affirms the second coming uh, is not uncommon. No doubt he could have referenced many other authors like Isaiah or Daniel or Joel or Zechariah. But instead, he uses the, the awkward character of Enoch. I mean, of all the people you're going to pick uh, to have a promise, go, go for an Old Testament reference for the promise of the coming and the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming. Why would you pick Enoch? You know, we're told very little about Enoch. A moment ago, I told you that other than genealogical mention at the beginning of, uh, I believe, Matthew and maybe in Luke as well, there's only two places that he's mentioned in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 and the Hebrew Hall of Fame, and then here in Jude. Matter of fact, if you search in the Bible, there are only 11 mentions of the person of Enoch, and seven of the 11 have to do solely with genealogy. Just mentioning him as he begat and begat and begat, or he lived so many years and he died. And Seven of those are, are just genealogical references. The most significant event that we have recorded in the Word of God in the Old Testament is found in Genesis 5.24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I mean, it's almost, it's almost a breath in, in the recount of his life. It's, it's next to nothing. Now, without a doubt, Enoch was a godly man. A man in tune with God. A man who is in close relationship with God. There is something, even though that's one mention, there is something about that verse that is significant. That is something for every one of us to aspire to, to to walk with God. To be so familiar that God say, well, hey, you're halfway to my house anyway. Why don't you just come on home? That's what I've heard other preachers say. In so much that he is one of the characters, one of the few characters in the Bible that departed from this world without a recorded death. Enoch and, and maybe uh, Elijah, one of the few. And so, but the words that Jude relays here don't come from anywhere else in the Bible. You know, Jude is putting this out as a quotation of what Enoch said. Now, these words may well have come from the extra-biblical source of a book called the Book of Enoch, a book that is not, was not considered as inspired scripture. The Jews of that day did not consider the book of Enoch inspired scripture, that high standard of what the canon of scripture is to be. But nevertheless, God seemed fit to preserve this statement from Enoch as divinely inspired. Now, if you're a careful reader of the New Testament, you'll find this same thing taking place. For example, Paul in the book of Romans. Sometimes he will say, as it is written, and to be honest, you can't find it. 
or it's a juxtaposition of a statement that has a broad leap in its context. And, and this is where I come, I come from the aspect if, if the divine writer set, wrote it, if the Holy Spirit approved it, who am I to question as to its validity? Who am I to question as to whether it should be there or not? And so this verse here it should, be, should be given the same honor, the same respect, the same validity of any other verse in the Word of God. So just because it comes from Enoch and maybe the book of Enoch, although, although we may well, this may have been direct inspiration. You know, God may through His Holy Spirit just put the words of Enoch in His, I don't know. But we give it no less weight because we can't find it in the Old Testament. Now, let's think about the point of this verse. What is, what is Jude doing? Why? Why does he talk about Enoch? Why is he trying to make a... a what, what, what point is he trying to make by using this obscure reference to the second coming of Christ? Well, look back with me at verse number 4. Take in that same little book of verse number 4. And notice what it says in verse number 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before ordained to this condemnation. Jude is in the same breath in verse 14 that he was in verse 4. You see, I believe that verse 4 is the lead up to the use of Enoch's prophecy. They're both in reference to these false teachers. And so this foreordained judgment that he speaks about in verse number 4 comes to its fruition in the prophecy of Enoch. The point I believe that Jude is trying to make is that these false teachers, these instruments of Satan masked as believers may be a surprise to us and a surprise to them that he's writing to they're conniving, but they're conniving. It was not a surprise to God. From the earliest days of time to the days of Enoch, seven generations removed from Adam, God knew they're conniving and concocting ways and they're not going to get away with it. Their judgment is declared a long time ago before Isaiah before Daniel, before Joel, before Zechariah, all the way back to Adam's. Seventh from Adam. They have not caught God unawares. I was listening to a podcast just the other day. It caught my attention because it has to do with criminal activity and Christianity. That intersection just interests me in many cases. And there was, the podcast was about a church, in, a church in South Africa that brought in someone who declared that they were filled with demons and uh, the church gathered around them and prayed that the demons would leave her. The demons so-called left her, but the reality is, is that she was a false teacher in sheep's clothing. She was a member of the church of Satan in filled with satanic uh, 
with the, with the lying tongue of Satan, she infiltrated that church and caused a split in that church. And the people that followed her, she had such a persuasion, such a tongue, that she coerced them to bring murder upon the other faction that was split off from that church. There were, there were several people murdered by those church members under her satanic direction. I was shocked as I listened to it. And many other stories could be told of such, of such, uh, uh, of such cults and beliefs in this world. But I want to affirm this. This takes God nothing by surprise. They are foreordained to judgment from the seventh generation of, from Adam. We can also see the point of this reference to Enoch in what Jude relates to us from his prophecy. Look at verse number 15. What's the point? What's the point of, of Jude using Enoch? Look at this. To verse 15. To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. I don't know of another Old Testament prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ that is so clear in the point of His return. Revelation goes to say how every eye will see Him. Zechariah hints at the fact that the Jews left in that day would realize that He is that Son of Man, that, that, that they will see the wounds in His hand, but not like this. This is for the unbelieving world. These are for the false teachers condemned in judgment. It says that they will realize their sin. You know, sometimes that's the most difficult thing to do in the world is to try to get somebody to recognize their own sin. The average person on the street, it's hard, to con it's hard to convince them of that, much less the false teacher with an ever-expanding following. They would see that following. And th listen, this is something that we're going to have to deal with as we get closer and closer to the coming of the Son of Man. There are going to be more and more false Christs, so those that will save their Christ, and they're going to gain a following. I say this to a majority empty church this morning. Not, I don't know. Not, I don't know if other churches are filled. I, I, I don't know if that would fit. But for our context, remember, the world is going to be taken in by so many with a silver tongue of Satan, and they're going to lead multitudes upon multitudes into a cauldron of the coming judgment of God. Shed light. That's why I used Enoch. To show in that day, we may not be able to convince them of their ungodly deeds now, but in that day, they'll have no excuse. They will cower in fear at the reality of what they have done. Of how they have spoken, their, their speeches, their ungodly sinfulness. They'll be convinced of it in that moment and the jig is up. It's too late. Judgment is upon them. The doors of God's grace are closed. There's no one to enter in that point. That's the point of this verse. The point of this verse, but notice also the picture of this verse. Look at verse 14. Look at how Enoch says it. Behold, the Lord cometh 
with ten thousands of his saints. In just a few words, Jude, through Enoch, gives a vivid picture of this coming of the Lord. The phrase, ten thousands of his saints, you'll find that in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, he talks about tens of thousands and thousands and tens of thousands. It's, it's a representation of a number that is humanly uncountable. Divinely countable, no doubt. But humanly, it's just people upon people upon ten thousands of people. What a vivid picture. Jesus is coming back in judgment, followed by an innumerable army of His people behind Him. You know, if you read your Bible at all, made your way through the New Testament, this, this description may sound slightly familiar. Turn with me to Revelation chapter number 19. Revelation chapter number 19. Hold that image that, that Jude is relaying to us. And look at Revelation 19 verse number 11. Listen to what John says. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war in his eyes there's a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and he had a name written with no which no man knew but himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which were in heaven followed him uh, followed him upon white horses clothed in fine wind, linen white and clean and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with that he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he shall tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Boy, it sounds a whole lot like about what Enoch is describing at the coming of the Son of Man, at the coming of Jesus Christ. What a glorious assurance that the coming of the Lord in judgment has been clearly set in the mind of God or at least in the revelation of the Word of God from the seventh of Adam to the dying, the drying pen of John's book of Revelation. Jesus is coming with His saints. Jesus is coming in power and glory. This has been so from the earliest days of creation to the close of the divine scripture. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming. Tick, tock, tick, tock. Jesus is coming again. The picture, the point of this verse, the picture of this verse, the principle of this verse. The principal meaning of this verse in the context of Jude is pretty plain. He is assuring the church that these hellish infiltrators will get the judgment that they are due. That they will indeed see the ungodly error of their ways and pay the ultimate price in the judgment of God. But we can further apply the principle of this verse. You may not be identified or described as one of the suspects in Jude's preparation, or Jude's letter, but nevertheless... It is a day to make preparation for. Paul, in very similar language to Jude, makes the threat of judgment clear. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 8, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you 
And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't believe on the gospel of Jesus, if you have not trusted, in, uh, trusted your life in the death, burial, and resurrection, if you have not recognized your own sin and turned to God in repentance, placing your faith and trust in Jesus, your faith will be the same as the devilish false teaching that Jude is pointing out. In Acts 17, Paul said it clearly, 30 and 31, at the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, wherefore given assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead. Jesus is coming in judgment upon all that forsake the gospel, that turn from Jesus Christ. I believe that we are very close to it. And I know I echo and sound familiar to a lot of old preachers from the 70s and the 60s and, and the 80s that all oh, Jesus coming is around the corner. But church, never, lo never lose sight of the fact. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. Whether it happens tomorrow, whether it happens 20 years from now. Tick tock, tick tock. Jesus is coming again. Peter declares the circular reasoning of this world in 2 Peter 3, 4 and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For, the, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That circle, on and on and on and on. And he go, but he goes on to say in, in 9 and 10, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but His long-suffering to, to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat the earth also and the works therein shall be burnt up Peter tells us there's coming a day I don't care what they say about everything stays the same it's just a cycle Re reincarnation rebirth we keep repeating the same thing and the same thing but Peter says it's coming it's coming tick tock tick tock tick tock Jesus is coming again if you're here today without Christ wake up let the alarm of God's Word grip your soul and come to Christ today. Think of the words of Jesus, Be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. This leads me to my last thought. The scriptural promise of Christ's return, the stunning judgment of Christ's return, the sure hope within Christ's return. The hope within I believe in the context of Jude's discourse, it is clear that the horrific judgment of this day is reserved for those that have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, rejected Him as Lord and Savior. This judgment is not, however, for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Notice, first of all, the contrast of that day. Jude, coupled with John's description of Revelation 19, paints a picture that is terrifying to the mind of the day of judgment. A day when the sword from the mouth of Jesus will lay waste to the armies of the earth where judgment will flow like a raging river on all those that reject and rebel against Him. But for those that believe, that coming day is one of great anticipation. For the one coming 
through faith in Him, has made us ready to be received by Him. We could get into the weeds here about the timing. We have different, different grades of where we think Jesus is coming, when we think He is coming. And I don't want to get into the weeds, but I do want to say this. I want to point out that the, the New Testament is absolutely clear that there will be a catching away of His own. I might know that, not know the exact timing, and I might not be settled on exactly when that's going to happen, but when Jesus comes in judgment and power, I won't be here. I won't be here. It may be just before He returns, I might go to heaven and make a U-turn, or it may be three and a half years, I don't know, but I do know this, I won't be here. I'm not entitled to judgment. Jesus took my wrath upon Himself on the cross 2 Thessalonians 4, 6 and 7 For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm so reminded of that hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer and its words. This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air, Farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. <laughs> I'll be caught up to be with Him. Oh, for the child of God, the coming of the Lord is not a day of dread. It's a day of delight. It's our heart's cry. So much that Paul says, so much so that Paul says that there is a crown associated with the anticipation of Jesus coming. Listen to 2 Timothy 4.8. He's, he's telling of his own departure and his own leaving this world. Henceforth there shall is, is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them that also that love His appearing. That love is coming. There is a special crown for all of us that adore, that anticipate, that look for the coming of the Lord Jesus. The contrast of that day, our confidence in that day. Our confidence emanates from the promise of God to all that believe. Notice, we're just going to jump ahead just a hair. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag, but if you would look at Jude 24, I reserve the right to come back and revel in it some more. But look at what it says. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion forever. That don't sound like rain and fire. That don't sound like judgment coming for us. No, no. He is able to present us faultless. Faultless before him. No, we have the promise of deliverance from the judgment to come. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth My word and believeth on Him that sent Me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but be passed from death into life. Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved 
from wrath through Him. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, And to wait for the Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Most of all, we take our confidence out of the tender words of Jesus spoken to those faithful, fearful disciples in the upper room just moments before Jesus was crucified on the cross. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Jesus is coming again to receive His own. We, we, we will be with the lover of our souls, whether by the grave of death or the glory of His coming, we will be with our Christ. We will be with our Savior. We will be escaped from the judgment to come. Child of God, throughout this life's journey, I can't help but think about Angie and what they're going through. How painful. What a blow this life brings. And no doubt you are reminded of stings in life, of disease and death and, and all, of the, all of the pains and sorrows of life that grip our hearts with uncertainty. This world that feels as though it's going to swallow us in a tidal weight of sin and, and hatred towards God. We face trials and challenges and the constant ebb and flow of sorrow and longing. But know this, Rest your days upon this, that the clock of Christ's coming comes tick by tick by tick, day after day after day. His glory appearance, His glorious appearance gets closer every day. And in that day, Jude assures us that we will be found faultless. When we shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before God's throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The only confidence that we can have in the certainty of the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ is to flee the wrath to come and find Jesus alone as our Savior and Lord. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ and Lord, Lord and Savior, I beg you in Christ's stead to bow your head and run to Jesus. Believe on Him in your heart and life. Trust Him as Savior and Lord. We know not the hour as Jesus said. We don't know the day of His coming. But you can be assured of safety from that coming. And that judgment to follow by trusting Him today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the hope and promise of Your coming. Oh God, speak to our hearts. Revive in our hearts an earnest desire to see Your coming. An earnest, earnest uh, uh, approach of labor and service and preparation for that coming. Oh God, there are people around us every day dying and going to hell. Not knowing that the coming, the tick-tock, 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 you're, you're coming, you're coming, you're coming. Every day we grow closer and closer. Oh God, 
speak to hearts this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Just as I am without one plea that thy blood was shed for me, just as I am, you sing. Go ahead, brother. Just as I am without one plea, you sing. You respond to God as He's worked in your heart. Just as I am. Page 80, number 81. 81. 